Romans chapter 7. As we have studied these seven chapters, and once again, please understand, if you're a visitor, we go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's very important, and if, and, and if we, and I know there's always visitors in our church, you're most welcome. If you live in Eldoret, you can make this your church home. But we as, who have been in these studies from chapter 1, all the way chapter 17, even if you have not been in these studies. If we can grasp, and it's not hard to understand, and apply what Paul is teaching us by the Holy Spirit here in Romans 7 and understand what it has led up to, it will change your Christian life from darkness to light. There is a misconception, I think, in the minds of many Christians that when you become a Christian, you go from darkness to light. Now understand, when we get born again, there is a level in which, of course, we go from darkness to light. The Bible even teaches us such things. He says in and all through the book of Psalms, and especially Psalms 119, that Psalm, when we're reading the Bible as we should, a lot of us have come to is like, oh, I like the Psalms that only have 13 verses. This one has 100 plus verses. But you look at it, and it's, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to thy word. Um, on and on, it's talking about the word, the word, the word, the word in Psalm 119. Now, there is a sense in which we go from a level of darkness to a level of light when we get born again, and we must, when we come into a revelation or a relationship, uh, for better words, with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, through the book of Romans and by way of Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that a religion that connects us to God is not only inferior, but massively detrimental as opposed to coming in the knowledge of God by way of Jesus Christ through a relationship with the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father. Very important. And as we've been studying the book of Romans, we have gone from condemnation to justification, and we are currently under a doctrinal trustees. I'm not just trying to use big words. You guys are smart, so you can handle it. A doctrinal trustees of sanctification. Condemnation in the first couple chapters, <clears throat> even those who have not heard the name of Christ, even those who've never read a Bible, because all of humanity is created in the image of God and has violated a moral consciousness. Um, the Bible uses the term, the moral law written on the heart. They've never seen the law of Moses. They've never read the word of God. And yet, 
The Bible teaches us in those first two chapters that they are condemned to die. How encouraging is that on a Sunday morning? Condemned to die. And God is justified in destroying those who are not born again by way of death. Romans 1 teaches us. One of the profound and yet one of the most repeated things I think for a knowledgeable Christian should, should use that verse that says they are still, they are without excuse. And we've heard so many questions raised. Oh, what about the person who's never seen a Bible, never heard the name of Christ? They're in the jungles of Africa, the jungles of Asia, the jungles of South America. Are they still deserving of death? Will they be sent in eternal separation from God in hell? And the answer is yes. And I don't want to go back over it, but we went through weeks of Bible education, Bible knowledge, telling us exactly why God is justified in doing such a thing. Exactly why He has every right. Because they know things that they're violating. Remember, our conscience is seared with a hot iron progressively, but when we come to that age of accountability, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever age that is, it may even be different, and I think, of course, it probably is different for everyone, and we begin to sin, we have violated the law of God that was written on our hearts, and we are condemned and we are guilty, and if we don't seek for the Savior, as Romans 1 said, but I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as the power unto salvation for the Jew and for the Gentile and the barbarian and the Greek and then everyone, all of humanity. So Romans has teached us about condemnation. We're all doomed. And yet, Romans 5, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is a way of escape. There is a Savior. There is a God. Only one. And remember what C.S. Lewis said. If there were a hundred ways that God could save us, because He's so loving and so gracious and so kind, He would have saved us in a hundred ways. If there were 50, He would have saved us in 50 ways. If there were two ways that God could save us, He would have made two ways of escape for us. It's not that God in His stubbornness, God in His... Um, frustration with humanity says, okay, I could save you many ways, but I'm only going to do it in one. No, that's not what God is doing. There is only one way, because there is only one God who is perfect and righteous, who's become a man, who has become a sinless, sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice for us. That was a lot of S words. I, I think I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I can't come up with that on my own. There's only one way. And then we move from that wonderful justification uh, that we're saved by the just works of Christ, justified in Christ. Um, one, some people say just as we've never sinned, not to neglect our sin and the great sacrifice that has made us just, but Christ 
can put robes of righteousness on us through His blood. The Father can put robes of righteousness through the Son's sacrifice to when He looks at us, the Father looks at us, it, He says, where's the sin? There's none. Because it's been cast into a sea, forgetfulness. It's been cast a distance as far as the east is from the west, which just keeps going round and round. It's eternal distance, infinite distance. And then what we've been discussing, ladies and gentlemen, please listen, is sanctification these last few weeks as we get into Romans 6 and 7. This is so vitally important to coming into a fuller walk with Christ. And yet, it is so neglected because our perception of what is important. And what I mean by that is so many of us are just looking to be saved from hell. Oh God, save me from hell. I don't want to go to that place. I've heard about it. In fact, I even believe it. And it, even if I doubt, if, if there's any doubt in my belief of hell, even if, even if there's a remote chance that there is a hell, let me follow Christ because I don't want to go there. You know, we, we tend, especially when we're younger and before we walk with Christ, which unfortunately mo most Christians, even maybe born again, can go a whole life with that being their attitude. I'm not going to hell. <laughs> I got fire insurance, bought and paid for. I couldn't afford it, so Jesus paid for it. He gave me a slip. I got insurance. You know, th th I'm not going to hell, and that is what we're satisfied with. You can turn my mic up just a little bit, please. That is what we're satisfied with. Sound team. Worship sound team over here. Oh, there you go. Turn my mic up a little bit. They're discussing the sermon back there. Um... You, we have to admit the reality that that is what most people are satisfied with. Jesus saved me, set me free from the possibility of eternal damnation in hell and then leave me alone. Or, if not, leave me alone. I'm okay. I, I, like I, I want to pursue my plans. I want to pursue my will. I want to pursue my dreams. This lie sold to us by Hollywood, literally sold to us as we purchase Netflix or, in the case of Kenya, burned CDs. Which is illegal, by the way. Just so you know. Not good. Just had to throw that little law in there as we talk about the law. Thou shalt not steal. We're just satisfied with this. And when we talk about sanctification, this could be and probably is the most important topic for every single believer here. The most important topic if you're here in an unbeliever is to be saved, but after that, you get saved in a moment through the blood of Jesus Christ as we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. That happens in a moment through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
And for the rest of our lives, we, we must understand the sanctification coming into the fullness of Christ should be our will, should be our desires. And we're deceived when it's not. Sanctification is the subject. As we pick up in verse 7, the, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not, on the contrary. And the, the reason Paul says that is because remember that intense illustration given in the previous verses talking about how we must die to the law. Not die in obedience to righteousness, but die in our attempt to obey the law through the flesh, through the strength of man. This is, guys, this is not just foundational, this is it. This is the key to sanctification. So he gives this, as long as a husband lives in the previous verses, the woman by law is bound to her husband. But if the husband dies, and ladies, don't get any idea. You can't kill your husband. Thou shalt not murder. It's like, oh, I'm not bound by the law. You're dead. No. no don't kill him or maim him, okay? But it's an illustration saying, okay, hey, if he dies, you're free from the law to go and marry another. And the death of Christ has caused us to die in our fleshly sinful attempts to obey, which Paul's going to explain in an amazing way by the end of this chapter. And you guys, hold on to your seats because you might just fly right out of them if you really love the Word and are paying attention. And, 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 and he's going to explain how profound it is. But... But, but we've been set free from the law by the death of Christ and we must die to the fleshly efforts of obeying the law. In the same way that a husband dies, we're, she, she's free to marry another. Remember, don't get any ideas, ladies. But, but she's free to marry another because she's set free from the law uh, which binds her to her husband as long as he lives. And that's why Paul in verse 7 is like, but wait a minute, I know, and he's already said this, this is now the third time. Is the law sin? Certainly not. Why? Because he keeps coming back to the anticipation of people accusing him of hating God's law. And that's not at all what's happening. So he says, what should we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And then I'll read several verses. Listen in verse 7. I would not have known sin except through the law. Okay, he's going to explain. And by the time we're done reading this, all of our hair is going to turn white, even your weaves. Because, it, guys, you're reading it and you're like, man, what is he saying? You, you read this and what is he saying? Well, it's not hard to understand. It may seem that when it comes off the page. For I would not have known covetousness, he says, unless the law had said you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once with 
out the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment. This is, this is incredible what he's saying. Uh, sin taken occasion by commandment? When we hear the written law of God, which the law is spiritual. Remember, it's going to tell us that later in this chapter. Sin is awakened, not righteousness. Very interesting that he would say that. And sin taken by the commandment deceived me and it killed me. So I've heard what is righteous, what is holy. He, he even says, therefore is the law, uh, therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So what does he say? He says, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, is the law uh, bad? No, it's holy. And how would I have known thou shalt not covet unless the law told me not to covet? But when I heard the law that had been written down by God through Moses and through the Jews and through the Old Testament and all these laws, what was awakened in me well, when hearing the holy law of God, the righteous law of God, what was awakened in me was sin. What? So you, you were told not to sin. And you were given detailed knowledge. By the way, the more knowledge we have of the law, the more knowledge we have of sin in the flesh. I, I hope you can follow along. And, and I know you guys are smart enough when a statement like this is made, you say, oh my, then I must learn more about the law so I know how big of a sinner I am, not to know how to fulfill it. It's not about knowing how to fill it as much as it is knowing who fulfilled it. Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, chapter, was it? chapter 6 or chapter 5. I did not come to destroy the law, Jesus Christ said, but to do what? Fulfill it. It's not to learn so much about how to fulfill it, but who to fulfill it. Who fulfilled it? And, and so Paul's saying, wait a minute. The law is holy. The law and commandments are holy, just, and good. Is the law sin? No. But when I came under the knowledge, the true knowledge of the law, that's what Paul's saying, and he but, but you got to ask this question is, what, what, wait a minute, Paul, you were an expert in the law. If you were to pick 50 of the greatest scholars on earth in Paul's day, Paul would be one of them. In fact, you probably could make an accurate statement, though it's a speculative. If you were to pick the top five greatest scholars on planet earth, during the life of Paul 2,000 years ago, he would be on that list. Today, if you were to pick the top 2,000 scholars on earth, I would not be on that list. But Paul 
in his time, if you were to pick the top five, he'd be on the list. In fact, the Bible even says he was the number one student at the number one school under the number one rabbi in all of the world. He was an expert in the law, and all of a sudden, he comes to the knowledge of the law that now has revealed not his capacity to obey it, but revealed to him sin that is continually awakened by it. Wow. You know, this is just one of those moments. And you're like, what a... You knew thou shall not steal. You knew thou shall not murder. You knew thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not lie. And here's the thing. He thought he fulfilled it. He thought he, he thought he fulfilled it until the knowledge of the law through the proper perspective of God came into his mind and heart. When Christ came and said, you've heard it said before not to commit adultery, but I say unto you, you who lust in your heart are guilty of adultery already. And all of a sudden, he realizes something that he says later on. He says, for the promise in verse 13 that he would be the heir of the world. Excuse me, that's not it. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was produce, producing death through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful, for we know the law is spiritual. Paul, you got to get this, because this is what the Bible's teaching us. Paul is, before he was born again, and now as born again, he wants to be sanctified, he thought he was fulfilling the law. Outwardly, thou shalt not lie, don't lie. Outwardly thou shalt not murder. I've never murdered. Outwardly thou shalt not uh, steal. I've never stolen. Outwardly thou shalt not commit adultery. I, 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 I've never committed adultery. And now he's come under the revelation that the law is not just a physical reality but it is spiritual and we as spiritual beings now must look inwardly to how we have violated the law. We look at our, our, our hearts, our flesh, our souls, and we see all of that sin in there, even if we haven't committed it outwardly. We see all of it in there. And Paul has now said, oh, not only have I broken the law, but I cannot fulfill it. And not only have I broken the law and I cannot fulfill it, the more knowledge I get of it, the more I desire, it, because I've been born again, that's a key, the, because I've been born again, the more I desire to fulfill it, and the more I desire to fulfill it, sin is awakened in me. And you're sitting there, and if we're listening to what's really happening, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Not only, okay, I get it, he got born again, and now he has a revelation of how wicked he is. Great. 
I've had that. Oh, okay, but uh, now that he's born again, he also has a revelation that he's wicked, but also that he could not fulfill it. So he must have a savior like Jesus Christ, whom he's preaching, to save him from the sin of not fulfilling God's law perfectly. Fine, I believe in Jesus. But Paul is going further and saying, not only that, but if you try to obey the law, sin is produced in you. If you try to obey the law in the flesh, sin is erupting like a volcano in you. And you're like, wait a minute. So now my, my good intentions to obey the law of God are actually going to produce more sin in me? That's what Paul's saying. Now he gives an, an explanation of the answer, but guys, that's a massive revelation. The law is spiritual. And he's going to explain exactly what he means by this. He goes on. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Now this is interesting. There is a debate on who or the type of person that Paul is or the type of person, the anti-type or the, the type of person we are in, in, in understanding how this applies to us as Paul describes himself. Is Paul describing an unbeliever or is Paul describing a believer? And there are those, inaccurately I might say, who believe Paul is describing an unbeliever, but he's not. Because nowhere in the New Testament is an unbeliever described as carnal. You can only be carnal as a believer when you're not walking in sanctification. When an unbeliever is described, the Bible uses terms like the natural man, the condemned person, but when it describes carnality like it was used in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's talking about people who are saved. So Paul is describing something in him that's going on as a believer, not an unbeliever. This is very important to note, as all of you are taking notes. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, carnal, sold under sin. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do. This should be comforting to us, by the way. Because this is describing exactly who we are and the intentions we have. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil that I do not want to do I do do. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is evil present with me, the one who wills to do good. 
For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he even says, I think I missed it, but he says, in me, that is in the flesh, dwells no good thing. You sit there and you wonder, okay, Paul, here's my recommendation. Go get a psychiatrist because you sound bipolar. In fact, I think we could diagnose Paul with schizophrenia. And, and yet, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words so that we could hear them and so that the church for 2,000 years could hear them. But what is he saying? He even says that when I got the knowledge of the law, it, essentially my intentions were to obey the knowledge I received because I want to do right. And in this obedience, sin is produced in the, the, the desire for obedience. And you're just sitting there and you're like, okay. I have the intention to do right, and it, not only will I fail with those good intentions, what you're telling me, Paul, is that in my attempt to succeed, where in fact I will fail, more sin will be produced? Wow. This is hopeless. This is utterly hopeless. Here's the point. Yes, it is hopeless. Through you. Through the flesh. Utterly hopeless. And I'm not talking about salvation. Understand that. I'm talking about sanctification. 